0: I'm sure unless you live in Papua New Guinea, you have surely seen the endless commercials of syrupy sweet Jennifer Garner asking, what's in your wallet? If you believe the subtle messages of credit card companies, the right card is practically heaven on earth. It will buy you endless happiness. You can actually Buy cash back rewards with these amazing little pieces of magic plastic. They will even solve your psychological problems if you believe the subtle messages of these companies. Kind of reminds me of recently driving through Louisiana. Now if you're from Louisiana, I'm just going to go ahead and apologize in advance. But I'm not real sorry because you live here now. So, I mean, there's a reason for that. So when you're driving through Louisiana, instantly the roads change. They deteriorate from Texas. The speed limit drops from Texas. That annoys me to know when it goes from 75 to 70. The roads become bumpy. And if you're coming back from Birmingham, Alabama, say, like we did, and you're on I-20 West, you come right through Shreveport, which I think is nothing but gas stations and casinos. And so all the way through Louisiana, going whichever route you might take, there is endless billboards advertising casinos. And it reminds me of these credit card companies because they seem to be trying to promise heaven on earth and the appeal of material, windfall, you know, and they just wake up. Do you notice who has the biggest, shiniest, most expensive buildings in town? The casinos. (laughs) It's not a coincidence. But the part I love the most is at the bottom of the billboard. There's this thing. I guess they have to do this. If you have a problem with gambling, call. (laughs) It's kind of like the warning on a cigarette passage. There it is on every billboard. You see, whether it's that world or whether it's the world of credit card companies, there is an underlying worldview taking place. Recognize it. See through it. And that underlying worldview is buy, buy, and buy some more. That underlying worldview is money, money, money. The, the message there is this world is all there is. That's the worldview. When it's over, it's over. Or, if there is an afterlife, and that's a big if, but if there is one, good and nice people go to a good and nice place. A worldview where hell is a relic of the superstitious past used by a power-hungry church to scare simpletons into submission. That's the worldview you and I live in, where hell itself is fodder for comic strips and stand-up comedy. A relic of the past when people were unsophisticated and uneducated. Friend, Revelation chapter 14 is here to say otherwise. Turn with me there in your Bibles or on your devices to Revelation chapter 14. I'm using the New American Standard 1995 version if you are wondering as we get into it. It's here to say otherwise. It's here to destroy such a worldview. It's here to teach us that there is a heaven and a hell. There is a, an unseen realm. There is a, there's the world we can see and then there's the world we can't see. And there are things taking place in heaven that, that directly affect what goes on on earth. And now if you're new with us, we're, you, you may, you may feel like you've walked into a movie that's halfway over. We're in Revelation 14. We've been working our way through Revelation and Where we find ourselves in the prophetic future is in the second half of the seven-year tribulation, what's called the Great Tribulation. We're in the second half of that. We're in the period where it's escalating rapidly toward the end. We've covered the the first seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments. And now we're in between the the seventh trumpet and the first bowl judgment. And, And we've got these special chapters of 14, 15, 16 17 and 18 that begin to wrap it all up, all the judgment will finally climax. The implied question of our chapter this morning, and I'm glad I shrunk it from chapters 14 and 15 to just chapter 14. That was a Saturday night decision. The uh, implied question is the title of the sermon. What's in your future? See, there's a question so much more important than what's in your wallet It's what's in your future. Can you imagine that advertising campaign? Can you imagine somebody coming on and acting like there's more to life than what you can see and touch and buy? An eternity that awaits us after this short life, this vaporous life, this brief life. That's the question that hangs over Revelation 14. What's in your future? Will it be standing with the Lamb of God on Mount Zion? Follow along. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having His name, and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And then kind of parenthetically, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they, Referring back to the 144,000, I believe, from verse 1, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. The four living creatures and the elders aren't singing the song. The 144,000 are. And no one could learn this particular song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste tells us they're men here. They're single men, unmarried men even. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth, in contrast to Antichrist, false prophet. No lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So what is in your future? The first possibility is here by way of application... Will you be standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion? Now, I'm not implying that you can become part of the 144,000. You can't. (laughs) If you're a Christian here, you'll be raptured out before all of this takes place. We met this group back in chapter 7, and we're not going to go back and rehash all of that. If you want that, you can go to the website and find that sermon. We met the 144,000, the 12,000 from the 12 tribes in chapter 7. We saw there that they are Jewish evangelists uh, unleashed on the whole world. And God has sealed them, protected them from persecution and from martyrdom until their course is finished. And now it appears to me that their course has been finished. They are the, the, the the tribulation is coming to a rapid conclusion, and by this point, perhaps they have all been martyred or died from other causes. And now they find themselves standing with the Lamb. Now the question then is not who is this group, because we've already met them. We see here that they belong to God. They belong to Christ. The name of God on their forehead, unlike the mark of the beast, right? Unlike the number of the beast, they are owned and set apart by God. And they've learning, they're have learning they learning this song. I think Jesus is teaching them this song. I think verse 2 is reference to Jesus. That's the same language that was used in chapter 1 to describe his voice. Here music is added to it. I think he's the worship leader teaching the 144,000 this new song that only they get to sing, that only they can learn. These have been purchased from the earth. So I don't think they're on the earth anymore. And then verse four and five describes their character, their integrity, their sanctification, their holiness, their blamelessness. As an example to all believers, because these are human beings, these are believers. So the question is not really who are they? The question is, where are they? That's the interpretive challenge right now in this passage. Is this heavenly Mount Zion or literal earthly Mount Zion? Those are the. Question, that's the question, that's the option. If this is heavenly Mount Zion, as referred to in Hebrews 12, verse 22, then they've all been killed for their testimony to Jesus, for the word of God. They've all suffered martyrdom. And now we get a picture of their victory, a picture of their outcome, a picture of the gain that they are going to experience as martyred Christians. They're standing with the lamb himself on heavenly Mount Zion, and they're singing praises to him and to God. What a glorious scene that is. Imagine that. Imagine a choir of 144,000 led by a choir director of Jesus Christ himself. Oh, you know, I mean, can you just picture that? Singing to the throne before the throne of God. What a glorious picture that is. This is where I lean. I think this is heavenly Mount Zion. The other option, it's a valid option, is this is literal Mount Zion. And that these folks have survived the tribulation. They actually were not martyred. They were sealed and protected all the way through. And now we're getting a foreshadowing of what's going to happen after the return of Christ. And what they're going to do in the millennial kingdom. They're in literal Jerusalem, literal Mount Zion as a choir of 144,000. Now it occurs to me that it could actually be both. There's nothing to prevent that this could happen first in the heavenly Mount Zion and then duplicated in the earthly Mount Zion. In either case, this group represents first fruits, first fruits of a massive Jewish revival at the end of time, a massive response by the covenant people to Jesus as their Messiah. And they represent the first fruits of that verse four, they are the beginning of that great harvest to come. They belong to God, they belong to the lamb, and now they connect to us because like all believers of all time, When all is said and done, when it's all over, we will be victorious in heaven. Or victorious on earth. Wherever we are, we're victorious. And so it is for them. That's what screams from these words, from these pages. They are not suffering. They are not persecuted. They are not hurting any longer. They are glorified and victorious with the Lamb of God Himself belonging to Him. Now, the application for us, the lesson for us is simply this. Hope leads to holiness. If you have a true hope in your life right now, not a false hope, but if you have a true hope that one day you will be conformed to the image of Christ, one day you'll be raised from the dead, and you will be uh, sharing in the likeness of Christ, if you believe that when Jesus splits the sky, you're going to be raptured and meet Him in the air, if that's your great hope as a Christian, then that hope... Will lead to holiness of life. What is going to happen in our future. Affects our present. And these guys here. These men here teach us that. Because the stress of this text. Is their character. Is their godliness. And their holiness. They have not been defiled with women. They have not had any illicit sex. Any illicit immorality. They have kept themselves pure. They have done this in their life. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Obedience, disciples, compliant, submissive. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits. And verse 5, they don't lie. They tell the truth. They are blameless. They're not sinless. They weren't perfect. That's only Jesus. But they're blameless in their life. They have a character worth emulating. And so the, the Bible here gives them to us today as an example. We can't join this group, but we can be like this group. And their hope is our hope. And that hope produces holiness. Look what it did in their life as they anticipated martyrdom. The purity that that brought. The same writer said these words. Familiar words that you'll recognize. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Just as He is pure. So what is in your future? Will you be standing with the Lamb of Mount Zion? Or... Or will you be subject to this lamb's judgment? Pick it up in verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is the other side of the coin. This is the other option. This is the other eternal destiny. Will you stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion? Or will you be subject to the Lamb's wrath and judgment? In a place called eternal hell or the lake of fire. Now the first angel comes and and is preaching. uh, What's called here an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. Literally it's to those who sit on the earth. And it designates that as every nation, tribe, tongue and people. And so we think at first that this means that this this angel flying in mid heaven, that's not way out in that's not in heaven, heaven. That's that's not running around on the ground, that's like in the atmosphere. So it's like a drone, you know, it's like traveling the earth, and he's flying around in mid heaven, and we think at first that this is he's he's preaching the gospel of salvation. Here's the plan of salvation for the world. And we could think that because it's called eternal gospel here. But that's not necessarily how we should understand this. This is not necessarily the message of salvation. The context is warnings for judgment. The first angel, the second angel, the third angel. It's all a context of judgment is coming. The end is coming. You almost are at your last chance to repent world. And so that's the that's the ruling context of this passage. And then if you begin to look at the message of this angel that's flying in mid heaven, it is anything but gospel. It's all law. It is a message of condemnation. It is a message of judgment. He doesn't say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He says fear God and give him glory because judgment is coming. A storm is coming. You need to fear God, the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the springs of water. This is law. This is the summary of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This is a summary of, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Listen to me. That's not how you get saved. You can't love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Only Jesus could and did. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is not the gospel, is it? This is some other message. I think the way to understand this is, The word gospel there is used as truth, as message, an eternal message, an eternal truth to proclaim to the whole earth these who are in rebellion still against God. A message of condemnation. Or, (laughs) some would say, no, this is a call to repent. They already know about Christ. They know about His death, burial, and resurrection. They know about His ascension. They know that this is the wrath of the Lamb. John has left out all of the context of the, of the person and work of Christ. And this is the call to the world to repent. World, this is your last chance. This is your last call. Change allegiance from the dragon to God. From Antichrist to Christ. And certainly that has merit as well. Is this a call to repent? I can accept that. If you've shared the gospel with someone, they understand the way of salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. I think these are wonderful words that you can present to someone because becoming a Christian does involve fearing God. It does involve submitting to God. It does involve reverencing God. Paul's diagnosis of the human race that's lost in Romans 3 is simply there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so this replaces that, does it not? Fear is another word for reverence, for worship, for awe. Give God glory, saying, you are not self-made. You are not saved by your own good works. Give God glory. That's the fundamental sin of mankind. We're idolaters. We give ourselves the glory. We give each other the glory. This is a paradigm shift. This is a total reformation of the heart and life. Fear God and give Him glory because judgment is coming. The hour of judgment is coming. There's a phrase that Jesus used all the time in the Gospels. My hour has not yet come. And now the hour of final judgment has. Worship him, he says in verse 7. So I'm pretty much good either way. I don't know how you feel about it. (laughs) I think this can be a call to repentance. I think this is nothing, could possibly be nothing more than a warning shot as we get close to the end. Verse 8, we don't need to say much about because we got two chapters dedicated to the fall of Babylon. Chapters 17 and 18 are devoted to that topic. And then the third angel, I do want to say this, it's very graphic. It's lining out who's going to be judged this way, those with the mark of the beast. But what I want to draw to your attention in this uh, verses 9 to 12 is simply what the third angel adds to the warning. And what he adds that is unique is that this judgment and this wrath and this torment really torture is unending. There's no escape, there's no end, there's no mitigating, no alleviating, no relief. That This verse, verse 11, is one of the strongest verses in the entire Bible on the eternality of hell and judgment. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. And so that's what the third angel adds as a warning. Then what is verse 12? Verse 12 is to give us a contrast with the true believers at the time. Instead of the mark of the beast, instead of this kind of lifestyle, these are the ones who persevere because look how they're described. This is how believers can be described. They keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Those things always go together. American evangelicalism has tried to separate them, has tried to say you can have faith in Jesus without obedience to God. Has tried to say you can be a believer without being a disciple. Jesus can be your savior without Jesus being your Lord. That's a false dichotomy. It is not biblical. And here in this text itself, it even puts the obedience of the commandments in front of the faith. They're so closely united. This is is the book of James in in one phrase. (laughs) All right. So who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Do we keep it perfectly? No. Does our faith waver and grow and weaken? Yes. None of this is perfection, it's direction, it's its purpose of life and the path that you're on. Now the same question still lingers for the rest of the chapter. And two more parts to answer it one positive, one negative. So what is in your future? Will it be blessed rest from your labors? Blessed rest? Look at verse thirteen, and I heard a see the alternating. We're just alternating back and forth between blessing and judgment. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, "Right, blessed, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on." I mean, so much martyrdom, so much suffering, so much bloodshed. The, the word is going to come to tribulation saints. Is going to say, if you if you die in the Lord, you are so blessed, you are so honored. Yes, says the Spirit. That's new. So that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. I think the whole Trinity is in this verse. I think the voice is the voice of God the Father. I think he is saying, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord Jesus. And the Spirit chimes in and says, yes and amen. Because they're going to rest from their labors and their deeds are going to come to heaven with them. Hmm. Every good deed you do as a Christian, every good act you do as a believer is going to follow you into heaven and be with you in some sense forever and ever. Listen, beloved, if there's no resurrection, if there's no heaven, if there's no reward, then what's the point? Let's go plunge into our sin if this world is all there is. Let's go live for the here and now if this is all there is. Let's eat, drink and be merry if this is all there is. But if there is a resurrection and if there is a heaven and a hell and if there is a reward, then by faith we say my good deeds are going to follow me to heaven. Don't go to heaven alone. Don't go to heaven without some good baggage, right? Some good luggage, some good deeds. And in that time in the future of this world, when Christians are being slaughtered left and right, when it's just a bloodletting like the world has never seen, when they are like sheep led to the slaughter. The word of God is going to come to them and say, you are blessed. And the spirit of God inside of them is going to confirm it. And it's, and it's going to say to them, you are about to rest from your work for the Lord. Is that what's in your future? I hope so. I hope you think of your life now as working for the Lord and your future is rest from your labors. Or. Or. Will you be crushed like grapes? In a wine press. That's the last part of this chapter. It's very graphic. It pulls in the illustration of farming and vineyard keeping. Look at verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. Most believe this is Christ himself. Having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Uh, Sickles, that long bladed instrument to harvest wheat, barley. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. So now this leads some people to think verse 14 is talking about an angel of some sort, maybe Gabriel or Michael, because another angel essentially tells the first what to do. Others say no, this second angel is really just informing the Lord Jesus that the earth is ripe. Okay? Anyway, the angel comes out of the temple And he says to the one sitting on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who sat, who had the sharp sickle saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth. This is just reference to masses of humanity, to nations, to peoples, to tongues, to language. Massive people groups are are considered here like bunches of grapes to be gathered and cut off the vine and and he threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. We're not in this society anymore. We go to the store and buy our juice and wine and think nothing of it. But somebody harvested those grapes, and in ancient times, you put them in a big concrete circular thing that had a, a little draining system at the bottom, and they would dump basket loads, bushels and bushels and bushels of grapes, and then people would get inside there with uh, barefooted and it would begin to stomp out the grapes and crush them and and, and that's the wine vat and, and producing that juice that then flows out and is captured and fermented. And that's the picture here that is being described for us after this great harvest at the end of the age. They're thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God. That is none other than God himself through Christ who is stomping out the grapes, who is crushing the grapes and producing the blood that would come from them. And so that's verse 20. The wine press was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. I believe this probably is the Son of Man being referred to. These angels are informing him because he allows them to participate in the end times. They're informing him that the earth is ripe. We feel that way now, don't we? I mean, don't we feel that way as we look at our country and we look at the world? And we say, we well, just can't even believe. Why, why? What is God waiting on, right? Don't, don't we feel that way? And we look at certain cities and states and certain things that go on around the world, and, and we just feel like, wow, I mean, aren't we ripe for judgment? And, and there's a sense the answer is yes, right? But, but imagine how much worse it's going to be. Imagine how much chaos, how much death, how much sin and suffering. And, and so this is when it actually is ripe. The whole world is looked at like a field that is white for harvest. It's not a harvest of salvation. It's a harvest of judgment. Compared to cutting down wheat and crushing out grapes. The city referred to here is Jerusalem. What we've just read foreshadows the great slaughter of Armageddon. The great final battle of this age. The final uh, battle of the end of the tribulation. And the idea here is human blood is going to splatter as high as horses bridles not blood is going to run for 200 miles as high as a horse's bridle that's that, that's impossible that can, that can't happen that would not that's not what it's describing it's symbolic and it's also literal in the sense that the blood is splattering that high the the 200 miles can be translated 180 to 200 miles two options it's like a big circumference around Jerusalem or that's exactly the measurement from the tip of northern Israel to the southern tip And so it may be describing a sense of judgment throughout the entire area of Palestine with blood being splattered up to the horse's bridles through that entire course of the land or it may be concentrated on the circumference of Jerusalem itself. In any event, this is the great slaughter of Armageddon where Jesus returns in the nick of time to rescue the Jews from being annihilated completely. And part of that rescue involves this judgment. If you refuse to repent then, whether you're in the tribulation or whether you're alive right now and this is how you die. If you re- refuse to repent, if you, if you refuse to refuse a life of sin, all that is left for you is the winepress of God's wrath. That's all that can be left to you. There can be no other outcome and no other option because God is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You're you're essentially if you have not repented of your sins, you are essentially in that wine press right now. And the way you get out of the wine press is by repenting. That's what removes you turning from your sin, renouncing your sin, hating your sin, forsaking your sin, turning to Christ and saying, I want to live a new life with a new heart and a new purpose and a new direction. I want to be a new person. I don't want to be that old person anymore. That's repentance, where you see the depths of your sin, the corruption of your heart. You see your sinfulness that drives your sinful choices and behaviors. You stop blaming others. You stop blaming sickness. You accept that you are a sinful person by nature and your heart is fundamentally bad. And you begin to recognize that Jesus is the only answer you could possibly have. You turn, you trust, that removes you from the wine press. If you refuse to do that, if you simply, that's just not an option for your life and you want to live the rest of your life that way and that's how you're going to die, then I would say to you, I would plead with you, try to live, try very, very hard to live forever. Because this world is as good as it's ever going to get. But if by the grace of God, he softens your heart and shows you your sin and you flee to Christ... You're going to stand with the lamb. You're going to rest from your labors. You're going to enter into the joy of your master. You're going to be made like Christ, never to sin again, never to die again. And you're going to experience the depths of a rescue from the wrath of God that doesn't even register, even on believers now, until we see glory. Father in heaven, we close our service this morning, Lord, with prayer that you would be glorified in this place as we pray, as we have our closing song. But Lord, right now we want to plead with you, every believer in this place pleading with you in the name of Jesus to rescue that person who's living their life right now in the vat. In the wine press. And they don't even know it. They're a a child of wrath. And they think everything is okay. God we pray to you right now. That by your spirit. You would convict. And you would convert. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.